Columbia Technology Ventures presents an introduction to patents and IP with Jeff Sears, Chief Patent Counsel at Columbia University. For more information, visit techventures.columbia.edu. So what generally is a patent? And if you've gotten the handout up front, uh, this is an actual United States patent. All the patents that the United States issues look just like this, same sort of format, same layout. A patent such as this, there's many ways we can describe it. We can fairly describe it as a monopoly. You know, you've heard the term monopoly, I'm not gonna to expand too much on it, but it is really a monopoly. It is a legal monopoly. If you are a finance person or a business person, you might be thinking about assets and balance sheets and books. A patent is also an intangible asset. It does go onto the balance sheets of various companies. Uh, it's just you know, a holding. It's like stocks or bonds. It's an intangible asset. If you're a patent attorney, you think about it usually in the last definition, and that is a legal right to exclude competition. It gives you a right under the law to keep people out, to prevent your competitors from knocking you off. So let's take a closer look at this patent, and I'm going to walk through the pages. So you look at the front, and you see up at the top, it has a title, Halloween Portable Container. I give this lecture a few times a year. I like to pick something seasonal. I'm really seasonally appropriate this time. It usually doesn't work out because it's usually nothing around February or March, but at least I've got a great uh, patent for October. If you take a look at it, you have a front page, you usually have a drawing on the front cover. It's a really short, sort of a high level uh, overview of what the patent might be about. And you will also see that there is an abstract, a very short description of what the patent is directed to. Very much like an abstract to a journal article. You also see on the front the inventor's name, and you see a variety of other information. There's just one thing I want to focus on further, the difference between the filing date and the date of patent. So filed is here, May 14, 2007, and issued is here, September 29, 2009. Now I'm gonna need you know, some enthusiastic members of the audience to tell me, do you think this is a short time or a long time, this two and a half year period? Any guesses? Average? Short. short. It is fairly short. It is fairly short. Um, if you are filing a patent application on an invention that has some sort of commercial significance, typically this time period would be about five years. It could be even longer. The patent office is a FICO queue. First in, first out. Each application is examined by an examiner. And you can see their names on the front cover. The examiners have a lot of applications to look at, and they look at them sequentially. So it's a very backlogged office. But let's take a look. Let's open up this patent and see what's in it. If you open up and you get to the first page, you see drawings. Drawings are a very helpful place to look in a patent. If you don't know what the patent is about, 
if you're not sure what the subject is, go to the drawings first. Drawings will give you a great idea. In this case, what we have are drawings of a mechanical object. Again, it's a fairly simple invention. It doesn't have to be. You could have an electrical circuit. You could have a gene sequence. You could have a chemical composition. You could have a flowchart for a series of steps executed by a processor. As we continue to flip through the pages, we have more drawings. And then finally we come to the text. There is a lot of text in patents, a lot of text. And for right now, I want to focus on the motivation for this patent. Let's see. The motivation is usually found in the background. And I'm going to be looking at column one, line 22. But first, let me tell you how patents are paginated. They do not have page numbers. They have column numbers, which are in the upper margin, and they have line numbers, which are down the middle, 5, 10, 15, 20, so forth. So if you want to refer to a portion of a patent, you refer to a column number and a line number. So I'm going to start reading around column 1, line 22, and you will immediately start to get a feel for the way patents are written. Typically, children collect confections and containers. Well, let's just stop right there. Not sure when you've actually used the word confections before. If you're not in the candy industry or the baking industry, it might be never. But you probably wouldn't say children go trick. You probably wouldn't say collect confections. You'd say they go trick or treating. But typically, children collect confections and containers such as bag, backpacks, cases, duffel bags, handbags, knapsacks, pillowcases, and even the popular orange plastic pail resembling a pumpkin. All right, this is starting to make sense. This person is talking about trick or treating. And then the author of the patent, the inventor, is trying to motivate the reason for the invention. And think about this, think about what's being said and ask yourself, have you had this problem? As more confections are received, the container becomes weighted and difficult to carry. Have you ever experienced that problem? You get so much candy, you can't carry the pumpkin from house to house. It's theoretically possible, it didn't happen to me. And as you go further on in the patent, you see additionally the containers do not have a cover to prevent the confections from falling out or becoming damaged from weather elements such as rain. Again, weather elements just like confection. We don't say, hmm, nice weather elements we're having today. No one says that, but it gives you a clue right away for how patents are written. Patents are written in what I would call a double jargon. There is first the technical jargon the jargon of the field. If you're uh, an electrical engineer and you deal with circuits all the time, there's terminology you'll use that everyone else in the field will understand. But if you're outside of the field, you may not. If you are a biologist or a chemist, same thing. There's technical terms of art that people in the field understand and others do not. So that's the first layer. The second layer of jargon is legalese. This is a document written by lawyers it is reviewed by examiners, and it is eventually, if it is very successful, going to be reviewed by judges and juries. It's a lot of lawyers in this process. And so lawyers add their own special language. So we don't talk about rain. Rain's very narrow. It's a very particular type of precipitation. We wouldn't say snow either. That's also particular. We want to cover all sorts of precipitation. So we say weather elements. 
It's very generic. It's very broad. And just in case you're wondering, we don't really call it trick-or-treating in the patent arts. What we call it is Halloween guising. Halloween guising. If you read paragraph one, uh, I'm sorry, column one, about line 10 to line 20, you will see trick-or-treating referred to as guising. So if you have any children or you know any children, you can ask them. Enjoy, or you can say to them, I hope you have a really great time Halloween guising this year. So let's move further into the text. There's a lot of text here. And I can tell you very generally that you can throw out virtually all of it. You can ignore virtually all of it unless you're a patent attorney. So again, you always start with the cover. Cover has a drawing. The drawing is going to be a very handy uh, guidepost for you to figure out is this something I might understand or not. Go to the drawings next. If they're not familiar, the next place you can go in the text is called the brief description of the drawings, and I'm at column two, line 65. You'll notice I have skipped the field of the invention in column one, ignore it, background. We've discussed it for illustrative purposes, but generally ignore it. Summary, ignore it. Go to the brief description. The brief description will tell you what it is you're looking at in the drawings. Sometimes mechanical drawings can be quite complex. Could be a cross-section along line AA of figure two. You might not know that just by looking at it. But the brief description will point it out for you. The two most important parts of the patent are the detailed description of the embodiments of the invention. And the last part is the claims. So the detailed description begins at column three, line 10, and the claims begin at column four, line 65. Let me tell you first about the detailed description. The detailed description is a great place to go because it is where the inventor has to teach people of skill in the art how to make and use the invention. Make and use, let's just leave it there for now. This is all of your gory details. This is how the invention does what it does. This is how it works. The last part, the claims, are the most important because it is the claims that define the legal right to exclude. Now, I haven't told you what that right is. I haven't told you how broad it is. I just want to leave it out there for now. So you read a patent, look at the front page, look at the drawings, look at the brief description of the drawings, and then ignore all the text except for the detailed description and the claims. All right, so what do you do with a patent? Anyone here watch Shark Tank at all? Yeah, okay, great. I've given this presentation before to audiences who have never heard of this program. Like, you're at Columbia, how can you have never heard this? Surely you have a television, right? There's only three things you can do with a patent. Only three things, and sometimes the entrepreneurs on Shark Tank forget this. Only three things. And in this scenario, you can think very much of a patent as just like being uh, a piece of land. Just like as if you held a title to an apartment or to a piece of land. Only three things you can do with it. You can sell it. Transfer the ownership to someone else. Just like you do with land. I'll sell my land or I'll sell my apartment. In that context, we talk about the assignor, the assignee, and consideration. The assignor is the person who originally held the asset. The assignee is the person who's acquiring it. And the consideration is the 
money or the other forms of uh, goods or something else that exchanges hands. I'm giving you my land, what am I getting in return? So that's door number one, you can sell it. Give it to someone else. Door number two is you can rent it. Just like with land, just like with an apartment or a house. If you have a house, you can rent it to someone else. You know what, I don't really wanna do anything with this patent, but maybe you wanna do something with it. How about you agree to pay me money every time you do something with it? The terms of art that we use there are licensor, licensee, and royalties. A licensor is someone who owns a legal right. The licensee is someone who wants to enjoy that right. And the royalties, just a generic term for the amount of compensation that goes back and forth. Now you are already familiar, though you may not know it, you are already familiar with licenses. You probably encounter them on a daily or at least a weekly basis. The next time you go to a movie theater or a concert or a sporting event, look at the back of the ticket. It is very likely to say something like, the management hereby grants to you, the ticket holder, the license, a limited seat license. Essentially, permission to sit in a designated seat at a designated time for a designated performance. It's a license. I own the concert hall. You've paid me money. I will give you the legal right to sit in this seat for this show on this day and time. It is a license. So, sell it. Someone else will do whatever they want with it. Rent it. Someone else will enjoy the rights you have in exchange for paying you money. You still own it, just like the concert hall. I still own the hall. I rent you the seat for a performance. Or door number three, you can use it to launch a new venture. Use it to launch your own company. And when we think about doing it this way, we think about a couple of things. Branding. Has anyone heard the term patent pending? Patent pending, it's in the law, a term that means absolutely nothing. It has no legal significance. It's pure advertising. If you mark something patent pending, essentially what you are telling the world is, hey, be careful. I have a patent application on file somewhere in the world. And hopefully someday this patent will actually issue and I'll actually have legal rights. So do you really want to go down this road? That's all it is. But if you are a startup company, or you're thinking of starting a company, having a patent can be very valuable because investors like to see patents. It's an intangible asset. It is potentially a legal right to prevent other people from doing what you're doing. Investors want to see this because they want to know that you're gonna have an opportunity to succeed, that you can capture part of the market. And we also call it uh, we also refer to it as excluding competition, erecting barriers to entry. It's a barrier. Hey, you wanna get into this field? You wanna make these pumpkins? You have to go through my patent. I have the legal right to exclude competition. If you wanna compete with me, you need to get the right. So how do you get a patent? How do they come about? Well, if you are a solo entrepreneur, or you are a small business, typically what you do is you start with your business plan. Or even if you're a solo inventor, you ask yourself, what is it that you're doing that you think is gonna make you successful? What are you doing that's gonna make you different, that's gonna make you better than others? 
And generally, when we think of patents, we think of four broad categories of technology. Compositions, manufacturers, machines, and methods. Okay, it's a very old terms, they're in the law, but they cover pretty much everything. Composition is, could be something like a drug. Could be two things that are combined together. A manufacturer is something that is made. Today we might call it a product. A machine is something that makes something else. The machine makes the manufacturers, and the method is the way something operates. That's it. So if you have any of those, you might have patentable subject matter. So what do you do next? I like to talk about patents in terms of hypotheticals, assuming you know a very simple invention and then we walk through the process and how does the patent process work and what do we get for it. So let's talk about a very simple invention that probably everyone has had experience with. I think I just had experience with this invention just last night. So let's talk about pizza. New York City, it's a great city for pizza. If you like pizza, it's a great city. You can get thin crust, you can get deep dish, you get a whole number of places to go, many of them very famous. But how do you prevent the inside of the upper lid of the pizza box? Notice in true patent attorney style, I didn't say the top of the box. The top of the box would be kind of ambiguous, but what do you mean by top? Now, what I mean is the inside of the upper lid or the interior surface of the top lid how do you prevent that from coming in contact with the cheese, making a gooey mess? You ever gotten delivery pizza and it's just, the cardboard is all over the cheese and it's just terrible. So how do you prevent that problem? Any guesses? Yes, that's right. With one of these, and there are many different varieties of these. This originally was invented, I think back in the 70s, I can't, give you the exact date. But if you went to google.com backslash patents, which is a great place to look for patents, or if you went to uspto.gov and you navigated to the patent search site, the USPTO is the official body in the United States that issues patents. It's an acronym for the United States Patent and Trademark Office. If you went there and you did a search on package saver, you would find the very first patent for a package saver. You can imagine a package saver that looks just like this, has three legs, but on the top, instead of having a round, contiguous surface, it's just these little times. So just three times on the top, connecting each of the legs. That's it, that was the original package saver. So we have an invention, the package saver. So we start thinking about what should we do with it? You know, I get a lot of pizza. It's really, it's gooey all the time. I get a lot of cardboard in it. This is terrible. This is really bad. There has to be a better way to do delivery pizza. Do I have an invention? That's always the first question I ask before patenting. Do I have an invention? Very simply, for the purposes of patenting, an invention is a solution to a real world problem that works. That's it. It doesn't have to work well. Remember, you think inventions? This is a patented invention. This invention solves a problem of having too much candy to carry house to house and having a trick-or-treating pumpkin that doesn't have a cover so your candy gets wet. That's the problem solved here. It's a real problem. It works, it solves that problem. It doesn't have to work well. 
So the first thing we think about is, hmm, do I want to file a patent application? Well, how much are we talking about? How am I going to get into this exercise? We can start very cheap. We can start by filing what's called a provisional patent application. And I'll walk through the process a bit more and I'll expand on what a patent is as we go through. You can get into the patenting scenario by spending about a thousand bucks. That's really your lowest number. Spending less than that is not advisable. Quick sidebar, you can file a patent application yourself. You don't need to hire a professional. Not a great idea. If, for example, you bought your apartment, you would not draft up the deed yourself. I wouldn't do it, and I'm a lawyer, but I'm not a real estate lawyer. I don't deal with these things on a daily basis. They're very complicated. So yes, you could file your own patent application. Unless you're at Columbia, that's right, that's great, unless you're at Columbia. If you're at Columbia, you have a great resource, a great resource. That resource is called Columbia Technology Ventures. It's an office within Columbia, and the role, there are many roles of CTV, Columbia Tech Ventures, CTV for short, but one of the roles is to commercialize inventions of our faculty and our other researchers. So if you believe you have a patentable invention and you're not sure what to do, a really great way to start the process, perhaps the best way, is to contact CTV. You can send an email to... There you go. And you can ask a question. Hey, I might have an invention. Uh, I'm a uh, you know, uh, graduate student at Columbia. You know, can you help me? That's it. This is what CTV does on a daily basis. It helps researchers patent their inventions. And you don't pay for the cost of the patenting. Columbia pays for it all itself. There's another side to that question, but I'm not going to explore that further. If you're interested, I'd be very happy to discuss it. So we start cheap. We can file a provisional application with the patent office. It's about a thousand bucks. And for that thousand bucks, you can say your pizza tripod is patent pending. That's great. So you came up with this nifty little invention. You filed the provisional. You're already patent pending. You're already the way, you're already part of the way towards getting uh, potentially funding for your startup because you have an intangible asset. Let's be much more rigorous though. <clears throat> and I've been sort of keeping things at a fairly high level, but let's really dive into the details. What exactly is this document? What is it that you're getting when you have this document? A patent is national legal protection for an invention. Like any good lawyer, I like to use terms that are really loaded, terms that have to be further defined. So national, what does national mean? National means there's no such thing as an international patent. Patents are country specific. This patent, for example, is a United States patent. It covers activities that take place only in the United States. It has no force in Japan, zero. By the same token, a patent in Japan has no force in the US. It has force only in Japan. Invention, we've already discussed. Solution to a real world problem that works. Does not have to work well. And legal protection, what do you get when you have this patent? A couple of loaded terms in this definition, let me parse them out as I read it. You get the exclusive right. 
Exclusive means it's yours and yours alone. Nobody else's, it's your right to prevent others. So it's your sole right to keep others from doing something. Notice what it doesn't say, that you have the right to do it yourself. It says you have the right to prevent or exclude others from practicing the invention for 20 years. So to read this out in uh, simpler words, if you are the owner of the patent, then the United States government has given you and you alone the legal right, a right you can enforce in federal courts to keep everyone else from practicing the invention, to keep everyone else from using it, from making it, from selling it, from offering it from sale, or from importing it. So if I own this patent, I can prevent anyone else in the United States from making the invention claimed in here, from using it, from selling it. That is correct. That's right. If I wanted to prevent that activity, I'd actually have a patent, have to have a patent in China. So what happens next? We filed our provisional patent application. Remember? We spent a thousand bucks. We went to Columbia Technology Ventures and got some assistance on our Columbia invention, or we did it ourselves on our own time, and we spent our own money. What happens next? We have a year to go to the next step, a year to really start the patent process. And what do you do in that first year? Well, if you're at Columbia Technology Ventures, one of the things you try to do is you try to get companies interested in your invention. Part of it is sales and marketing. You say, hey, I have this great invention. It's a great invention. It's a better Halloween pumpkin. It's better. Do you want to make it and sell it? Because we're Columbia. We're an educational institution. We don't make products. But hey, Walgreens, do you want to make it and sell it? Or maybe you go to the manufacturer itself directly and not the end retailer. Hey, I noticed you sell products like this. Do you want to make and sell this one? This one's better. The candy doesn't get wet. Kids can haul a lot of candy from house to house. They're gonna sell a lot of these. So you try to pitch it. See if anyone wants to make products. See if anyone wants to license it. Remember, only three things you can do with it. Sell it, rent it, use it to launch your own company. So maybe you try to pitch it to licensees, people who might want to make it and use it. You know, maybe it's successful, maybe it's not. Maybe you try to do it yourself. Maybe you try to make these things in your garage, you try to shop them around, and you use the patent to exclude competition. Who knows how it turns out? But at the end of the year, at the end of the provisional period, you have a very big decision. You have to either go to the next step or let your application go abandoned. If you go to the next step, you can potentially get this document a full United States patent, the legal monopoly. But this is expensive. This next step will cost, roughly speaking, 10,000 just to start. That's because a provisional application, as the word might suggest, is just that, it's provisional, it's temporary. Typically, it is very short, it's a couple of pages. But a full application can be many pages. It can be 30 pages, it can be 50, it can be 100. And the person who's writing it is an attorney. And attorneys bill out their time by the hour. 
and they typically charge hundreds, if not more, per hour. And the process is long. It's long. Remember, two and a half years from filing to issue, that's short. You're potentially looking at five years or longer if you have a patent on an invention of commercial significance. Well, what happens in all that time? What happened between, on this patent, May 14, 2007, when it was filed, and September 29, 2009, when it was issued? The patent, the invention, was being examined. Remember, there's an examiner, the primary examiner and the assistant examiner. The examiner was reviewing the invention. And the examiner was reviewing two different parts of the patent. Remember, a lot of text in here, a lot of text. So the examiner is doing two types of tests. Let's talk about the first type. The examiner is reviewing what we call the specification and the drawings. The drawings are the drawings. The specification is all the text except for the claims, all the text. The examiner is looking to find two things. The examiner is looking to determine whether the inventor has satisfied the tests of enablement and best mode. Here's an easy way to think of these tests. So patent is a legal monopoly for 20 years. If you own it, you have the right to prevent anyone else from making these for 20 years. The patent system is essentially an incentive system. It basically says, and Congress has said this to the public, inventors, we want solutions to problems. If you give us solutions to problems that satisfy various tests, here are the tests, we will give you a patent that lasts for 20 years. We will give you this reward. Give us a solution that satisfies the test. Your reward is a patent that lasts for 20 years. Imagine if you were the inventor of the original cell phone, the first one. You would have a patent on that for 20 years. Now, every day, uh, now, generally speaking, people have at least one cell phone. I unfortunately carry two because I like to keep personal business personal and work business work. But I'm not uncommon. Many people have two phones. So if you were the inventor of the first cell phone, you could prevent anyone else from making cell phones. They'd have to come to you for a license. This would be extraordinarily valuable. So what happens at the end of 20 years? The invention falls into the public domain. It is free to use by anyone. But part of the test that has to be satisfied to ensure that happens is enablement and best mode. The government says to inventors, you have to tell us how to make and use your invention using no more than routine experimentation. You have to tell us in here, in the text, how we do it. Because at the end of 20 years, we all get to do it for free. And we don't have reference to you because we don't know where you might be. So it all has to be in here. You have to tell us how to do it using no more than routine experimentation. Now you don't have to tell us every tiny detail because you can assume some things. This document is written to be read by people of ordinary skill in the art. The example here is a fairly simple mechanical object. So a person having ordinary skill in this art is probably someone with a high school education 
maybe more. Doesn't mean it's a bad invention, doesn't mean it's trivial, it just means, generally speaking, the level of education required to understand the principles is fairly low. But if we're looking at a drug, for example, a drug to treat cancer, you're probably looking at some sort of pharmacologist or someone with a biopharma background, a PhD, probably five to 10 to 15 years of experience in a laboratory trying to formulate drugs. The level of skill is very high. The level of expertise required to do this successfully is very high. So to satisfy the trade, the inventor in the text has to teach one of skill in the art how to make and use the invention. So at the end of 20 years, anyone who's of ordinary skill can just read this document and do it themselves. The inventor also has to, do, has to do one other thing in the text. They have to disclose what we call the best mode. That's the best way that the inventor knows of practicing the invention, of carrying out the invention at the time you file. Think of it like a recipe for a cake. If you know that you have to put the cake in the oven at a certain time, at a certain temperature, for a certain period of time, otherwise the cake won't rise, otherwise the souffle is never gonna rise, you have to put that in because the public has to get the benefit of the souffle at the end of 20 years. You have to describe the best way you know how to do it. So the two parts of the test. Then we come to the most important part of the test. And it has to deal with the claims. So I'm going to go to column four, line 65 in the sample patent. The claims are the most important part of the patent. I've probably mentioned that a few times, and I'm gonna tell you why. Because it is the claims that define what the legal right is. I told you that if you have a patent, you have the legal right to exclude competition. legal right to prevent anyone else from practicing your invention. But we have to know what your invention is. What is it, Jeff, that we can't do? Tell us. What is it? And it's the claims that tell you. It's not enough to say, it's not fair to say, you can't do what's in here. Well, I don't know what's in here. There's a lot of words in here. I need a definition. I need a deed. Like a deed to a piece of land. If you hire a surveyor to survey your land, and let's just call this Jeff's land, and do we have any lawyers in the room other than Jay? You're a lawyer? Great. Jeff's land, or for you uh, former law students, current lawyers, Blackacre, we're gonna survey Blackacre, Jeff's land, we're gonna hire a surveyor, and he's gonna use some really fancy instruments, and he's gonna come up with a map. And the map is going to use a lot of a lot of things that we're all familiar with, like longitude and latitude and altitude, and maybe some common boundaries, like a string of trees. You know those are trees, right? Right? right. A river over here. And you'll come up with a map, and my land will be defined by my surveyor. And the surveyor will say, Jeff's land runs from you know, longitude, latitude, whatever, however many minutes, uh, thence many rods or feet or miles to this other location, at which point it runs southerly at this, whatever, this angle for this many feet, et cetera, et cetera. And I will take that map and I will file it with the town registrar 
There it is, it's on file. And what I'm saying to the rest of the town, to the public is, don't step here. This is my land. If you step on my land without my permission, you will be trespassing. If you come onto my land and you knock down my prized cherry tree, my prized cherry tree that funds my whole operation, this is what I am, I'm a cherry tree farmer and I sell cherries. The cherries grow in a tree, I hope so. I hope it's not a bush, what have you. If you come onto my land and you chop it down, my God, I can sue you for damages. My gosh, I lost the value of the tree. This was a perennial. It has fruit every year. I lost the value of this year's fruit, and I lost the value of every future year's worth of fruit. You need to make me whole. All right, straight. Patents are exactly the same thing. The claims do exactly the same thing. The claims that begin on column four, line 65, they define what the invention is as a matter of law. What is it that we can't do? It's what the claim says. You can't make, use, sell, offer to sell, or import what's in the claim. In land, we say trespassing. In patents, we say if you are knocking off someone's patented invention, if you're making it without their permission, let's use the right tense here, you are infringing. Trespassing on land, infringing on patents, same thing. And as you might expect, if you knock off someone's patented invention, if you make and use and sell this container without my permission, I can sue you for damages. Hey, this is not fair. You go to Walmart and you see mine on the shelf and next to mine is yours on the shelf. But you're ripping off my invention. And every time yours gets bought, I lose a sale. I lose profit every time someone buys the infringing product. You need to make me whole. You need to give me damages. That's why the claims are the most important part. And it's a really an excellent reason why you should not undertake to draft this document yourself. Because it is the claims that define how good your patent is. So turning back to Shark Tank, <clears throat> I think it's a fun program, but it does really fly at an exceedingly high level on patents. And the questions the shark typically ask is, oh, is it patented? Oh, yes. Got a patent right here. And they move on. And I always want to say, well, wait a minute. First I say as, you know, someone who's been doing this for a dozen years, there's no way you got a patent on that. Let's see what's in that patent. Let me take a look at those claims. Because what is it? that the public can't do. How big is Jeff's piece of land? How big is Blackacre? Is it the size of Argentina? Wow, that's a really good patent. So a lot of people go there. A lot of people live there. A lot of people are gonna to need to pay you rent. Or is it Tierra del Fuego? Yeah, not many people go in there. No one's really making these. Not patented. No one's making these because no one wants it. That's always the key question. So what the examiner does with the claims is he, he or she looks at the claims to see if they establish three tests. Utility, novelty, and non-obviousness. Utility is really straightforward. The United States 
Congress is saying to inventors, we want solutions to problems. We want things that make our lives better. It has to be useful. It has to work. Don't give us inventions that don't work. They're not inventions. We're not gonna reward you for that. Now, I give this lecture many times a year. I like to trot out whatever my favorite invention of yesteryear is as of the day. So I will trot out one. Hopefully some people remember. So what did you do when you wanted to change the channel on your TV before you had a remote control? What did you do? That's right. You had to get up. I remember having to get up and walk over to the TV and turn a knob, not push a button, literally turn a knob from channel two to channel three, which was always snow where I lived, to channel four or to five. And God, that was terrible. It was so slow. And you can probably remember the UHF dials at the bottom, this big spinning dial. That was really clunky, that was terrible. People got exercise doing it that way, but a remote control, now that's a better solution. So it has to be useful. And then it has to satisfy two additional tests. I think we would probably agree that so far, everything I've said to you about the test is fairly unobjectionable. It makes sense. The last two tests I'm gonna tell you, one of them is gonna make philosophical sense, and the other one, you're not gonna be happy. It's okay, no one's ever happy about it. It's just the way the law is. Novelty and non-obviousness. Novelty says this. Inventors, we want solutions to problems, things that make our lives better. We're going to give you a 20-year monopoly. You better give me something that's not the same as what already exists. Novelty asks this question. Is your claim, when we talk about novelty, we talk about claims, is your claim the same as something else that already exists? The examiner is free to do a search of what's called the prior art. Prior art is a legal term. It means anything else that is publicly accessible as of the day before you filed. And you want to show that you're the, your claim is not the same as any single item from the prior art. Is it the same as? Well, if it's the same as, it's not new. Why would we give you a 20-year monopoly for that? We already knew that. Gee, thanks. I already got that one. That's not such a great solution. No, thank you. You can keep it. It's novelty. Easy, philosophically sound. Non-obviousness is not easy. And it's really subject to hindsight reasoning. It's a classic example of hindsight. So occasionally I like to watch uh, infomercials. And if you watch Shark Tank, uh, Lori Grenier, who's one of the sharks, always has these products on QVC. And sometimes I'll get steamed because I'll see some joker selling, I don't know, some piece of junk that does something dumb, but it does something. They're selling it for $9.99 a throw or $19.99. And you see the little counter at the bottom of how many sold, and it's like 10,000. And I start doing the math in my head, and I'm like, this joker's making 500,000 on this piece of junk? Oh my God, that's so simple. I could have done that. I could have done that. It's a classic example of hindsight reasoning. When I tell you the answers to your homework, well, everything's obvious. 
oh yeah, I got that, yeah, I knew that. So what non-obviousness says, it's not enough that your claim is not the same as anything else that already existed. We're giving you a 20-year monopoly. It has to be more than that. Now, I am going to fly at a very high level on non-obviousness, very high. This is a difficult test. It's complicated in the wall. But for the purposes of today, let's say non-obviousness means this. Your invention has to be significantly different from anything else that already exists. If it's epsilon away, if it's really, really close to what's already being done, it's not enough to justify a 20-year term. It has to be significantly different. Novelty asks, are there differences? If yes, you pass the test. Non-obviousness asks, what kinds of differences? How would someone of skill in the art view those differences? All right, I think this is the slide I will end on. And again, happy to take questions. But I would certainly be remiss if I did not include this content in this presentation. It's critical. What do you need to think about before you file? You have to ask your question, yourself the question, are patent rights available? Patent rights are not available forever. There are certain things you do that will cause your rights to be lost. It's good news and bad news scenario. In the US, the clock, the timing aspect is really long. It's a year. You have one year from the date of certain events to file your patent application. If you don't file within a year, your rights are surrendered. What are those events? Let's talk about them generally. We will call them public disclosure, public use, and offer for sale. If you go to a conference, like an academic conference, and you put up a slideshow that describes what your invention is and how to use it, and the public could attend the conference, that's a public disclosure. You would have one year from that event. Think of it, I have one year from when I publicize my invention. You don't have to go to a conference, you could just put it up on YouTube. Put it up on your blog. If it's publicly accessible, you have one year from that date. If you use your invention in public, yeah, you know, I uh, made this model and I use it and I bring it around with me wherever I go. I have a year from the first time I use it in public. If I make my pizza tripods in my garage and I go down to Joe's Pizza Parlor and I say, Joe, I'd like to sell you 100 of these at 10 cents a piece, and I make a binding offer that Joe can accept, that's an offer for sale. Or even if I go worse, I actually sell them. That's a full sale. I have a year from either of those. So think of the US as one year from the first date of public access. I have a year from that date to file. If I don't file within the year, my rights are lost. The rest of the world is not so forgiving. And remember, a US patent covers only US activities not activities outside the US. Many times you will want patent protection in a variety of countries. Imagine if you came up with the first cell phone. You're gonna want protection in any market for cell phones. You're gonna want protection in the United States, the countries of Europe, Japan, China, India, Australia. Generally speaking, outside of the US, there is no grace period. U.S. one year, outside the U.S. generally, it's what we call absolute novelty. 
if I publicize my invention today, and by tomorrow I have not filed a patent application already in Japan, my rights are lost. You must file on the date of your first non-confidential disclosure. Let me differentiate two terms. So the US cares about public disclosures. Did the public have access? So you have a year. That's US. Ex-US, outside the US, everywhere else, is concerned about non-confidential disclosures. No grace. How does this come up at Columbia? Usually the scenario. You are a faculty member or a researcher or a grad student and you're looking for funding. And you see ABC organization has a funding program, but you have to send in a grant application. So you come up with your great pizza tripod invention and you say, well, I'm gonna send it in. I need some funding to figure out how exactly to do the plastic and the process, whatever, but I'll describe all of those great details and I'll push the send button off to grant company or grant organization. If it's federal, you're fine because federal agencies generally treat grant applications as confidential. Even if it's a state agency, you're probably still fine because it's confidential. But generally the organizations you apply to are not federal or state, they're private. Once you hit that send button, that's a non-confidential disclosure. Go back, if you ever applied for a grant that's not federal or state, read the terms of the submission. And you will see somewhere buried at the bottom, text that says, this submission is not confidential. We do not agree to hold this in confidence. We're gonna do with it whatever we like. So as soon as you hit that send button, you have just created for yourself a zero day clock. You must file your applications around the world as of that day, otherwise tomorrow your rights are lost. What about the US patent when it's published? Does that then make it a public or a public Yes, yep, it is so true. At that point you would want to file everywhere you could if you were to go that route. There are other reasons. <clears throat> For simplicity, I'll answer this question in a slightly different way. So as soon as it publishes, you have no days to get into another country. You have to already be on file. But typically the way you prevent this from happening is you file what's called, after your provisional, remember this provisional we filed? Ways away. Typically what happens at 12 months, we have to decide what to do next. Is my invention great? Is it gonna work? And I'll go further in the patent process. I really have more choices than I told you. Because my choices are let it go abandoned, which means end of process. All right, that doesn't move. I can just go straight to the US patent process. It's fine. Or I can enter what's called the PCT patent process. It's an international patent application process. PCT is a treaty, the Patent Cooperation Treaty. And basically, it's a treaty signed by virtually every industrialized country in the world and it says the following. If you file a PCT application, we will agree to treat that filing as if you filed in our country. As long as a 
at 30 months from your original filing, you enter our country. What does enter mean? Enter means you file the formal paperwork in our country to enter our national patent system. So that's typically what people do. Typically you have a provisional on day one. A year later, you are filing a PCT. You are preserving worldwide rights. And then 30 months from your provisional, you are choosing which countries you really want to have patent protection in. Typically it's how we do it. So great news for you if you are a Columbia researcher. This can be really complex. Do I do US only? Do I do PCT? Should I do a provisional at all? I'm thinking about publishing. Should I publish? Should I not publish? Should I go to that conference? The great news for you is you have a fabulous resource, Columbia Technology Ventures. Any questions about an invention, you're not sure whether it's worthwhile, that should be your first stop. It is 100% free. Columbia pays all the patent expenses. You have access to great people internally who know how to market technologies, who know how to find companies who want to make and sell these things, and you have access to lawyers who can help you. Should definitely be your first stop. Now there are other things in the deck that I've not described. I think I'll just finish with one last item for when you leave Columbia, wherever you go. Ownership is very important. <clears throat> Ownership of IP. If you end up working for a company, Johnson & Johnson, Intel, Mobile, whatever the company might be, on the first day you're hired, you're gonna be asked to sign two documents. The W-2 form, which is very uninteresting, and something that's gonna be called an employment agreement, or a contract, or the handbook, whatever, it goes by many names. This gonna have a lot of text. It might be double column. It's probably gonna be a log of legalese. You're not gonna read it, you're just gonna sign it. It's okay. Everyone does the same thing. And ultimately, you have no negotiation power anyway. Because a company says, oh, you don't wanna sign the employment agreement? No problem. Next, send them in. Give the job to the next person. So you have no negotiation leverage, it's okay, but you should at least know what's in it. And something that's in it is going to be an ownership clause, an ownership of IP clause. And that clause is going to say, while I'm employed by company, I agree to transfer to company, I agree to assign to company, and I hereby assign to company, I hereby give to company all the inventions I might come up with wherever in the world, whenever I come up with them, while I'm employed. Company owns everything. Very important that you look at this before you decide to start the patent process on your own. Because it would be a shame if you spent a lot of really serious money getting the patent on this, only for the company to own it. Because you signed that employment agreement that said, I give all my patent rights to the company. So, at the end, if you remember nothing about this presentation, you definitely want to remember two things. Questions about patents or inventions, what do I do? Columbia Technology Ventures. First stop, without, without a guess, without even hesitating. Great, fabulous resource. Second thing, the grace periods. 
There's no retros, there's no backsies, there's no do-overs, there's no wink, wink, nod, nod, can't we agree? There's none of that. I can't get you out of the box. Remember, there's a year grace period in the US, there's no grace period outside the US. I can't make those go away. But now that you know of them, and you know of CTV, you'll know, hmm, if I have an invention, we talk to CTV first. Or if you're outside, let me talk to someone who knows patenting before I take this too much further to ensure my rights are still available. Thank you for listening. For more information on Columbia Technology Ventures, visit techventures.columbia.edu.